0: Welcome to the Advice and Insights Podcast with David L. Bonson.
1: Welcome to this week's Advice and Insights Podcast. We have kind of a fun treat in store today. We've been sort of collecting different questions from listeners over the last couple weeks that have emailed things in. And by the way, just if you have a question and you didn't get it in and we don't discuss it today, I guess I can make this sort of a permanent announcement. You're more than welcome to to send things you'd like us to cover on this podcast anytime you just send it to Bonson group at hightoweradvisors.com and my team gets it. They'll pass it on to me and we'll kind of approach it in one of these different podcasts. But as you know, we want to use the weekly advice and insights podcast to cover broad array of topics, get people more familiar with how we believe about managing money what we believe about a full, uh, successful wealth management experience. And from time to time, bringing in people from the Bonson Group team, we've already brought in Dea Pernas, who was our managing director in our solutions and analytics group, very involved in our manager diligence, our trading operations, our investment kind of infrastructure, if you will. Uh, Last week, we had my partner, Brian Saitel, who's involved in all aspects of our private wealth advisor group and dealing with clients, dealing with portfolio management and financial planning. And Brian gave a lot of perspective on things. Well, this week, we are doing the questions from the readers and I've brought on as a guest, uh, one of my very, very favorite people on the team. I would say that even if he wasn't sitting there in front of a microphone, and that is Peter Van Verhees, who is our associate in our strategy and communications group, and I would also point out that he is the first and only intern that we ever hired as a full-time professional position. We uh, want to give him a career out of the Bonson Group, and and when he was a, uh, a stellar student at UCI, preparing to graduate, he interned for us, and we didn't let him go after that. Peter, how you doing, bud? Doing great. Glad to be with you, David. So, Peter, you got uh, the questions in front of you. I don't know what you're going to ask me. I don't know what people have specifically asked. I think that you're kind of on top of this. You just fire away at me and then we'll kind of have a little conversation and we'll address what uh, people, what listeners have uh, expressed an interest in us addressing.
0: Absolutely. And we got a lot in. So I made sure to just give you the hardest ones uh, to make it make it nice and fun for the listeners. And because I'm in California now and you're in New York, how about we start with the first question, which is how do you manage living in California and New York with your kids, school and wife? They don't mind all the back and forth. Uh, kind of what's your take on that? Uh, give the listeners sort of an idea of what's your experience been like so far?
1: Well, you know, I've been um, traveling to New York for uh, business obligations for basically 20 years, and and obviously all business travel uh, became much more difficult after my wife and I had kids. Our oldest just turned 13 years old yesterday. Happy birthday, Mitchell. So we have a 13-year-old, 10-year-old, and 7-year-old. And, and so as we decided with Bonson Group to actually open an office in New York City, and when was that, Peter? That was over a year ago now that we made this decision. Yeah, right about a, right about a year ago, yeah. Um, the idea was just to kind of have the place to work when I was here in New York. Um, the basic reasons that I'm out here are that we have a significant amount of clients in the tri-state area, roughly, Uh, 30 clients and growing in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut markets. And I am on the board of two nonprofit organizations that are based in New York City, two of the three nonprofits that I serve on the board of, all three of which mean the world to me. But uh, two of them happen to be based here in Manhattan. That is National Review the uh, almost 60-plus-year-old entity uh, started by Bill Buckley, a conservative, intellectual, political think tank. So they're based in New York, and the uh, King's College is based in Lower Manhattan, an outstanding uh, faith-based liberal arts uh, undergraduate college that um, I, is, campus is down at Wall Street, and I am on their board. So I have these board activities, I have client base, and so we opened an office out here and then have since kind of begun to staff it. I have an assistant who works here, Kelsey Thompson. Hello, Kelsey. I hope you're listening. And um, the, the basic uh, reality of our industry, right, is that uh, the primary source of idea generation of equity analysis of uh, portfolio management and the premier asset managers, whether in traditional or alternative asset classes are all based here. And I mean, of course there are really great money managers based in Boston and Denver and some other niche markets, but really uh, New York is the capital of this. And so we have very strong relationships with the partners we have in asset management. They're based here in New York, and I like to be in front of them. I like to be with them. It dramatically impacts uh, our process and I think our sort of intellectual dynamic approach to what we're doing on behalf of client uh, capital. So with all that kind of frequency in New York travel, my wife and I made the decision last summer when my kids were off school to come out and be here for the summer. And we did that, loved it. We got an apartment in the Upper West Side, and, and my office is in Midtown. And uh, just kind of let the kids enjoy Manhattan, did some fun you know, things over the weekends when I wasn't working, and then uh, uh, went about our business. And as you know, Peter, and uh, we'll tell our listeners now – we're so technologically hooked up between our, our California office in New York that between real time chatter online and our Skype and video capability and doing conference room meetings with uh, video uh, technology, it, it kind of, did we didn't really skip a beat at all. We were, it was really very effective. But then we went back to California in the summer and went back to normal where I would be in California about three weeks and New York one week and go back and forth and do what we do. And, and, and really for me, and you know, a lot of listeners don't know this and some listeners may not even care. But um, I'm up at 345 every single morning, whether it's New York or California, whether it's a weekend or weekday. That's not going to change. I love it. It's just part of how I'm wired. Um, But uh, I am basically working all the time, all the time when I'm not with my family and, and I'm including and in working the reading of research, analysis, reports, conference calls with analysts, all of those things. I get some of my best work done from 3.45 until 9.30 in the morning. And the reality is, is that that is a longer stretch in New York than it is in California. So in a lot of ways, I feel more productive uh, when I'm working out here. But I need to get back to what the real question was, which is how I manage with my family. So, yeah, I'm basically my wife uh, just suggested, look, we're going back and forth and we're based here in Newport. Why don't we just for one semester uh, flip flop it, be based in New York and have the kids in school out there. So my kids are right now in school in New York They're coming back um, and and we'll flip flop that again. We're going to be in California almost the entire summer. Um, I did not like the humidity of New York, by the way, in the summertime, I wear a suit all day, you're walking around meetings and so forth. It's very, very uncomfortable. But I digress. Um, The reality is, is that we are just a bi-coastal firm now. And it's something my wife has accepted. My wife loves Newport Beach. She loves New York City. And and, uh, our kids have really adjusted well to it, have fantastic schools that they attend in California and in New York and it's enabled me to more diligently serve my clients and run our business Um, i'm plugged in all the time working all the time and then now am present with my family all the time so Win-win, and uh, everybody seems to be really happy with it. Was that pretty much the, the whole context of his question? That was definitely
0: the question. I just want to add, obviously, from the perspective as someone who works here at the Bonson Group, who's not David Bonson, other than not seeing his face every day, which we obviously all miss because we like seeing the guy. That's why we work here. Um, it's it's like he's in the office. I mean, it, to illustrate this, I'm in California He's in New York right now. We're literally having a conversation as if we were face to face, but we're 3000 miles away. That's how connected this firm is. Uh, whether it's on this, on video, on our other technology stuff, it's, it's really amazing. People can literally be anywhere in the world and they'll still be connected to our clients, still be connected to everyone else that works at the firm. It's really, it's really remarkable. Uh, what, what we have.
1: Well thank you for that, Peter. I, I feel the same way. I think we're all you know very well connected. I think, I think uh, I appreciate you seeing it of course and hopefully you know some listeners like hearing it. But the reality is is that uh, we, I think we have a family culture, the Bonson group. I think that um, that's true with the New York folks, the California folks. Uh, California is always going to be home base, always going to be my home base. but the reality is that this uh, New York expansion has really been a year old now. And frankly, most people don't even know about it. So it's not been disruptive. And as you said, we, we, look, you're complimenting my face. I bet a lot of uh, a lot of the others probably are happy to not have to see my face. They're content just to have to read my emails and text and, and chatters and all that type of stuff. So.
0: Exactly. All right. Well, let's. uh, We don't want to take up too much of everyone's time. We have a lot of questions that came in. So let's get to number two. Uh, Another listener wants to know how many clients does the Bonson Group have? And are they mainly individual or institutional or somewhere in the middle?
1: So we have 16 people who are on the team of the Bonson Group who work for the Bonson Group. And of those 16, I will list off those who are what we call private wealth advisors that have direct relationship responsibility to clients. That is myself, Brian Seitel, Kimberly Davis, and Don Solick, who are also partners in the firm. That's four of us. And then Robert Graham and Trevor Cummings, who are private wealth advisors. That's six people total. And of the six of us, there is somewhere in the range, it, it can vacillate you know, a few here, a few there, roughly 250 clients. So our goal is to have each advisor have a very manageable number of relationships that they're responsible for in terms of primary coverage and communication. Now, for every client, Their portfolio management is being managed by our investment solutions department. I serve as the chief investment officer, and I'm setting asset allocation decisions for every single client working in concert with the appropriate advisor. And then Daya and Kenny in the the strategy and analytics division are implementing, trading, running reports, creating models, and so forth. So um, at the end of the day, 250-ish clients is the, is the answer, but it's divided up. Um, and if you just did the basic math, it doesn't work out linear like this, but obviously that's less than 50 clients per advisor, although the numbers are not evenly distributed that way. So we think that that is extremely um, manageable We are very cognizant about keeping our capacity uh, very realistic, not just for all the advisors. I mean, obviously, there's an infinite capacity for the asset management side. You know, the ability to if if you uh, break it down micro, if you have one point three billion you're managing like we do, and let's say it was three billion. And we wanted to, to sell Intel uh, as an example, which we don't, by the way, but if we did, you know, you you could be selling Intel for a billion of capital or three billion of capital. Let's say it made up, you know, 1% of the portfolio. It doesn't make a difference. The capacity constraint is more on the operational side, right, Peter? It's more um, our service and operations group, their ability to properly administer, administrate, oversee business. Payouts journals. There's just a really significant administrative um, responsibility, so that's where we are constantly making sure we invest more resources. And as a matter of fact, we uh, added two brand new people coming into 2018, and the service and operations group that Jacqueline O'Hare oversees now has five people in it. So we've we've grown a lot there, and we've grown for the purpose of serving those clients.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I, I got to give it to Jackie and their whole team. I, I sit next to them every day. They are very, very busy. Um, it's absolutely insane the amount of work they're doing, you know, under her leadership and just everything they got to do. I'm, I'm I'm really, really impressed by them. I mean, I'm, I'm impressed by everyone on the team, but specifically Jackie, I just think she's absolutely crushed it lately and uh, really, really happy for her. Couldn't agree more. All right, so question three and four I'm going to combine because I think they would make more sense as a combined question. Uh, one of the questions is what fee would the Bonson Group charge on a $1 million portfolio versus a $5 million versus a $25 million, uh, specifically if there was a balanced allocation of 70% equity 20% fixed income and 10% alternatives. And obviously you can speak to kind of the numbers on that. And then the other sort of second question that relates is, do you have a minimum account size?
1: Okay. So let's start with the, the fee level. I, we don't, and I'm not going to now, we don't quote fees generically. Um, we only quote fees in the context of a very specific engagement, specific proposal for a specific, you know, prospective client. As a general, just rough estimate with various variables that could affect this, I would say that the average fee at a million dollar level is about 1% net, 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 all in. Um, covering the entire engagement with the Bonson Group. Um, that could be a bit lower in certain circumstances. It, it probably couldn't be much higher. Um, and then on a, uh, a $5 million level, generally as a rough estimate, you're probably talking about somewhere around 0.8%. Was there another dollar threshold? You yeah, had $25 million. Million. And then twenty five million, you're probably talking about forty to fifty basis points again, depending on the asset mix, um, the the level of and family office services that are being used. You know, we we have a pretty extensive set of services that we're offering at different levels, and so the 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 use of those services will kind of determine where we end up sort of pricing things. So it's something that I'm very uh, uh, out of an integrity. Um, careful to not provide a firm quote on, but as broad-based rules, um, you know, median level, I think that 1% going down to 0.8 at 5 million, going down to 0.4 or five at 25 million. Um, obviously, we have clients in all those thresholds and all different fees around it, so... Um, it, it, it is particular to those cases. We do have you know, flat fee services available. Some will pay a particular fee for our asset management and then a flat fee for other consulting and planning services. So that's one of the beauties of being independent versus the fact that we were previously at a large Wall Street firm, that we now have a great deal of flexibility as to how we price our services. Okay, refresh from memory on the second part of the question. Do you have a minimum account size? We do not and we never will. Okay, and so let me explain. We have a very, very specific minimum, and the minimum is in the quality of the relationship. Our minimum is we need our people to trust us. We need our clients to trust us. We have to have a connection with them, a compatible relationship. Um, We have clients that are $250,000 in some cases, not very often, we have, um, you know, dozens of clients that are over ten million dollars. We have fired clients that were over ten million dollars. We have fired clients that were under one million. Um, our our desire to uh, formulate the client roster that represents the people that that uh, you know are paying clients of our firm is entirely driven at this point around the people we want to work with, and where we think we can add value. And, and where we can have a beneficial relationship. So where there's a need, where there's uh, sometimes complexity, where there's mutual respect and compatibility, that's where we will formulate a relationship. If uh, we will not say to somebody, look, we just simply don't wanna work with you, it isn't, it isn't enough money. We have a fee that we're gonna charge, but an asset threshold is, is just not the way I built the business and it's worked for me for almost 20 years, I don't feel a need to change it now.
0: So I think your comments kind of go well into the next question as far as, you know, adding value to clients and, uh, you know, just really trying to make sure that it's a compatible fit. So the question uh, more specifically is, what do you think is the Boston Group's biggest value add to clients and why, if you had to pick one? In turn,
1: Okay, repeat that again. I want to make sure I get this
0: right. What do you think is the Bonson Group's biggest value
1: add to clients and why? So I believe that, um, as is the case in a lot of professional services, that there are a number of different interpretations or different answers that some clients might give. In other words, there may be some clients who would say David's stock selection is the biggest biggest value proposition out of our relationship. And I do think that we're good stock pickers and have a really wonderful investment methodology that we believe in. But I don't, I don't personally believe that to be the greatest value proposition. Others would say, you know the portfolio is a portfolio some are up some are down here and there some are a little better than others some a little worse but really the value proposition we get out of Bonson Group is their their planning the financial planning the estate planning working you know on the tax and legal side the, all the peripheral services along with the portfolio aspect that's really the unique value proposition just how comprehensive and holistic the whole service set is. And I think that's getting a lot warmer. I think that there's a lot more to to what we're doing. Fundamentally, I believe that the most important value proposition is probably one that very few would identify, but that doesn't make it less true or legitimate. And that, it just means that there's not necessarily as much self-awareness about it. And that is the behavioral modification. What I mean by and what I mean by that is the avoidance of big financial mistakes. To me, I think that we are in a position to keep clients from doing what is natural in human nature to do, g- Levering up in greed in certain periods of time and and levering down in panic and certain and risk level when things are are horrible. <clears throat> we, we work tirelessly. To keep people from doing that. We work empathetically to keep people from doing that. Try to maintain that poise, try to maintain emotional stability, and basically kind of get paid to take on that anxiety for people. Um, and I don't think that very many people are as capable of doing that, especially to extended periods, as we might fancy ourselves capable of being. I will add then something that I consider to be completely unique at the Bonson Group in my uh, uh, unbiased opinion. And that is we work uh, like nobody I've seen in wealth management to uh, create content, to be a thought leader that will grow the kind of understanding and, if you will, financial intelligence of our own clients. We do want them to understand what we're doing. Um, We do want them to be confident in it, but we also want them to have that confidence rooted in their own, you know, growing awareness and understanding and competence. And so our perspective on um, any and all things affecting the economy, uh, investment capital markets, whether it's the stock market, international markets, you know, interest rates, fixed income. Um, I don't say it to brag because I actually think it's sort of bizarre and, and my wife doesn't like it at all. And, and that stands, that means something. But, I mean, I read a thousand pages of research a week, literally. And and it, I obsess over uh, proper understanding of the macroeconomic environment and understanding the things that are uh, the forces that exist in moving markets. I don't believe that anybody, by the way, is ever capable of having their finger on the pulse completely of something as multi-layered and complex as investment markets. But I believe that um, we owe it to our clients to be uh, hyper-engaged in in what we're doing to custody their assets and, and out of that custodianship of their assets, the way in which we steward capital and manage it We owe them a certain financial result that is goals driven. And I believe I do that better by being extremely engaged in the research management process. So there is a lot of value proposition that that comes out of that aspect. So again, that's four different examples of things I would say. You could put the same question in front of four clients and, and get four different answers. So it's it's kind of fun.
0: There's a few different sort of major value propositions, and each person is going to you know pick and choose the ones uh, that are most advantageous to them because everyone you know is going to have have their own needs. So it uh, certainly sounds like uh, like it's going well on that end. As far as I wanted to kind of ask a question about you know the recent volatility because a few weeks ago at the annual dinner um you mentioned just vaguely again not predicting the time it would happen just saying you felt like uh you know the markets being up 22 23 24 months in a row uh was just not natural and that we were due eventually for volatility and then boom like two weeks later it happened um were you surprised by that what was what were kind of your feelings when that first happened and what were clients reactions to it and sort of how did you uh coach them or explain to them that, you know, this is okay, that this is normal, that this is where that equity premium comes from. Kind of give us some insight into that.
1: Well, certainly at the time that I was predicting that we were going to see elevated volatility, I did not have any timeline in mind. I didn't have any magnitude in mind. So if someone had said to me, um, hey, you're saying this right now today here on, on January 24th and on February, uh, you know, what was the date uh, ch- ch- ch would have been February 5th, the market is going to drop 1600 points in the middle of the day. And and I would have said, okay, I wouldn't have been either surprised, I guess I, I guess 1600 points in the middle of a day would have surprised me, but the idea of the volatility coming in two weeks or not coming for, for four months, in neither case would it have necessarily um, surprised me. Because volatility by definition and any sort of market gyration is is, is inherently unpredictable, especially the timing of it. So I no more would have predicted that it was going to happen when it did than I would have predicted that it would have ended as quickly as it did. You know, I'd I'd actually sort of prefer 2,000 point down days in a three-day time span over you know, nine 300-point down days in a 30-day time span or whatever the case may be. One feels a little bit more like getting punched in the face, and the other feels more like water torture, if you know what I mean. So so all that to say that um, we do not manage money around a perspective on when volatility upside or downside will hit. We manage money on what we think Uh, makes sense in terms of actual valuations and the ability to extract value from a given investment through a period of time towards a specific financial goal. Generally, when it comes to stock market ownership, what you're trying to get is a purchase now on a future claim of earnings. And um, the reality is that I think that, that enable that, that forces someone to not attempt to time it whatsoever. Um, and, and and to have a perspective that there will be periods when things are lower, um, things periods where things are higher, and that as dividends are reinvesting for an accumulator, they're gonna benefit. And as dividends are being withdrawn for a withdrawal, they're completely and totally insulated from the impact of market volatility. So, uh, we embrace it. We look to balance around it. We're as tactical and active as we can be, but with no sense of timing driving.
0: Yeah. It. So, as far as kind of around, I guess, the topic of market timing <clears throat> and just, uh, you know, normal speculating and trading and, you know, sort of the news media style investing, what a lot of people, you know, think portfolio management and investing is, you know, through through things like this podcast, through Dividend Cafe, Market Epicurean, The Financiers, all of these different podcast uh, video web social properties that we have you know your goal is really to basically take the bonds and groups ideas and spread them to as many people as possible and spread our investment philosophy and really work on investor education both for people that are our clients and just for the general public to help out uh, so where i guess originally where did you get the idea that that would be something that you would want to do have you done that for your whole career for just part of it what was sort of the impetus for starting to do that and then how has it evolved over time?
1: Well, so the initial, I mean, I always was a heavy communicator very early in my career. I always was diligent, I think, to be in touch with clients, writing, speaking, you know, educating and things like that. But where I really systematized it and and it ended up becoming a weekly client commentary um, that we do every single Friday without exception. And then now we have called it Dividend Cafe Um, just to sort of brand it and formalize it and house it all in a web property. um, That began at the financial crisis. It it just sort of started off as very consistent, periodic, systematic communiques to clients around the world ending and around, around what was happening with the health of the world's financial system, credit markets in particular and and the response to it was so overwhelming and i think the value it created for a lot of clients was so compelling that it sort of accidentally enabled me to see that there may be a real opportunity here to improve upon the value we deliver by by keeping it going well after the time the crisis had subsided so that was the initial genesis and then just over the years i've tried to become more intentional um, about making it readable, making it comprehensible, not writing it for myself, but writing it for the clients who are reading it. And then, of course, we've added other uh, properties around it and kind of enhanced the portfolio, if you will, of, of content that we're making available to our clients.
0: Yeah. Um, so uh, kind of still along those lines, if you – had one thing that you wanted to tell clients about those properties about either a single one or just the properties in general or the value that, that they essentially add to people's lives what would it be like something that you're really passionate about writing about but that people may not have picked up on yet or or something that you know you want to do that you feel like would be really advantageous to people What what's something that you would want our audience to know in terms of what i would recommend they read uh, not so much in terms of what they would recommend that they would read, more just uh, something, uh, I guess, like a either a timeless lesson or just an idea or part of our philosophy that you try and constantly communicate through your writings. Uh, but maybe you haven't done it so overtly, and now is sort of your chance to be overt about it.
1: No, that's a great question. I think I think that um, that in a sense, I believe that our kind of top ten key investment principles are all of equally important magnitude but that if i had a gun to head and someone said you get to share one more nugget of wisdom and then you're and then that's it and 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 other people's financial you know uh, futures rely upon that one nugget for me it would be the emotional and behavioral response during during doomsdayism i think that the vast majority of money i've seen lost meaning permanent erosion of capital money that is gone and not coming back has come as a result of an investor making an utterly insane decision not a result of one bank stock beat another bank stock or one rally you know uh was offset by another you know panic attack or something like that the up and down movements of markets the S&P's performance this year versus the small cap performance next year. All those things matter. All those things play into what we're doing as we're kind of turning the knobs on delivering an investment outcome. But the sort of make or breakness of financial success is always primarily behavioral. And that would be the one timeless thing I'd want to share. So
0: how has we've talked about, obviously, the Boston Group and kind of what you feel is most important with that. Let's go towards you for a little bit. What would you say in the past 16, 17 years that you've been in this business, how has David Bonson changed? As far as either as a person or just uh, your outlook on the markets, what's been the biggest change that you've made for the better?
1: Oh, I, I mean, it, to the extent I'm qualified to answer versus the far more qualified people to answer, namely my wife, and then and then secondarily my team, and then third, I suppose, were our clients. But from my vantage point, I do believe that I have grown a lot in the empathy I have around different client emotions, fears, concerns. Um, I no longer believe that whatever I'm thinking must be what a client's thinking. I understand There is so much um, particularity in each and every client situation, and it means a great deal to me. I also, I also believe that um, that there is uh, a significant improvement in just our overall investment process. You know, I really um, uh, came out of the financial crisis deeply um, impacted, as a lot of people did, as to my responsibility. To to manage the macro and the micro to the best of my ability, to manage behavioral circumstances the best of my ability, and I think that there was a tremendous uh, maturity that was forced upon me out of the crisis, both as a investment professional, but also as a, as an adult. Um, so hopefully that, that there's some kind of nugget of truth in that in that answer. Um, I guess the only other thing I'd offer is just the, the blessing of Having a very um, full business, a very successful, you know, operation, uh, we we are able now to have that selectivity benefit of who we work with, and and we want our clients to like us, so we want to like our clients, and um, not having to deal with toxic relationships or anything like that is is a huge benefit, and it is something that's created, I think, a different David Monson each and every day
0: yeah no I, I think it definitely has i mean being able to make sure that you know you and your clients especially in this business where it requires total trust and uh you know total competence on both ends for you to be able to purposely go out and make sure that it's a good fit you know not just for us but for more importantly for the client i think it's i think it's really really powerful um Let's go with uh, just probably a couple last questions here, sort of wrap it up. We obviously don't want to don't want to take too much time, uh, but tell us a little bit more about your your media career. You know, you're on TV all the time. You've been on Fox like six times in the past week, and I know because I watch all of them. Um, and you know, you're doing a great job with it. You're really kind of getting the dividend growth philosophy of the Bonson Group out there. But more specifically, how do you feel like? your attention in the media spotlight and your you know connections and wall street and politically how do you feel like that adds value for clients about beyond being able to say that you know my wealth manager is on tv which is really cool
1: well i mean it's 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 a great question it's uh it's funny you said media career i i thank god it's our career since it you know pays me zero dollars and, and zero cents i'm legally prohibited from receiving any compensation for it and yet um, you know, there's periods where we'll go like a month where I do no media at all, and then, like you said, this week has been very, very busy, largely because of the, the market volatility of last week, and then, kind of anecdotally, there I I have a book that has just come out, and that's opened up a few other you know inquiries and requests, um, and so it's been you know much busier. As you know, we built a little studio contraption right in our office in Newport, so I can just basically film right from my desk. I don't even have to get up anymore. And, and, and here in New York, all the stuff is a rock throw away. So it isn't a huge time commitment. Um, but it, from my vantage point, I believe very strongly. I really don't like doing media stuff if I don't think I'm going to have a chance to actually share substantive content. So if I get a chance to actually preach the merits of dividend growth, of behavioral finance, of monetary policy, Um, you know, to the extent that sometimes they're asking me about politics or my book or something, that's a kind of separate subject, but in the investment space, you know, they'll call sometimes and say, is Facebook going up tomorrow or down tomorrow? And I'll, I'll say, I'm not the guy for you. And so we're turning down as many interviews as we're accepting, of course, but, the reality is that um, I believe it's important that we continue in that uh, commitment of content creation and thought leadership, and whether for good or for bad, uh, media pr- provides an incredible venue for for demonstration of that thought leadership and spreading that sort of message, and we think it's borne a lot of fruit. So um, I don't know if clients uh, you know get a kick out of seeing it or not. I think some do, actually. Someone shared that with me, but... It, it, it is for us just a part of continuing to build out our whole platform, our brand, our message, what matters to us.
0: All right. Last question. Let's look to the future. Bonson Group, 2023, five years from now. Where, uh, where do you see it? Where do you see clients getting more value? Give us the vision.
1: Well, by 2023, I believe we will still have our primary office in Newport Beach and a satellite office in New York City, just as we do now. I would imagine we'll have more employees than we do now, but I don't imagine it'll be a ton more, but that's hard to speculate. Um, And I believe that we'll continue retaining our clients, um, which is what we do very well and do it because we care deeply For their outcomes, you know, we'll have a whole slew of clients that are right now not retired, that over the next five years will retire. We'll have new clients born. We'll have other clients, you know, that that, uh, let's just say are the opposite of born. I mean, it's part of that whole dynamic movement of life, right? And yet, I think that we'll continue at each step of the way to grow in our competencies and in our commitments and in our ability to execute on those things. And, and I believe that in 2023, it'll be the uh, same philosophical Bonson Group it is now, but a better version of it, a more mature and more developed and a more sophisticated version of the same principles that are at the core of who the Bonson Group is now. And we, in, we continue to represent those principles on a daily basis. Love it. Any last comments? Well, uh, Peter, you did a great job doing the interview. Uh, next time, I think I'll switch the microphones around and I'll interview you on some things because you kind of caught me off guard in some stuff. So you're pretty good at this. I'll try to repay the favor, my friend. Absolutely. I'm, I, I, uh, I look forward to being tricked up. <laughs> but, but luckily, I'm the one who
0: edits the podcast. So I'll just edit out the uh, the oh, embarrassing that's
1: questions. That's true. That's a advantage that the strategy and communications group <laughs> has is they control all that stuff where I wouldn't even know like how to access it. So yeah, you you, you can manipulate as you need. Uh, to all the listeners, we'll close it out here. Once again, this is David Bonson, Chief Investment Officer, Managing Partner at the Bonson Group. Grateful to all of our friends at Hightower Advisors. Grateful to Uh, all of our clients. And today I am grateful to my colleague, Peter, who has joined me today. Thank you so much. And we look forward to coming back next week with more advice and insights.
0: Thank you for listening to our advice and insights podcast with David L. Bonson. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analyses, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team in Hightower shall not be in any way liable for claims and make no express or implied representations or warranties as the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information reference herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates.